Episode 118 is right here for you now. Have you ever had a difficult day at work or an argument with a family member and you were busting to go and do a workout or go for a run? It's pretty common because somehow we intuitively know that moving the body is able to relieve that emotion or mental tension. And if you don't get to go for that tension-releasing experience, then you might just throw some shit around the kitchen or simply be really down for an extended period of time. Can you relate to any of this? I'm guessing the answer is yes. And if that's the case, then this episode is certainly for you, unless you're a monk. But in this episode, we talk about how movement unlocks trauma, how different types of exercise can relieve depression and anxiety, and how programming the gut microbiome can alleviate symptoms of addiction. This one is an absolute bombshell. So let's do it. Let's get in there. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? It's good to be here in your ears, bringing you the latest How to Not Get Sick and Die goodies straight to your brain. It is my mission to coach 250 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy life that they truly want before the end of 2021. And a major part of that journey is getting your head right, organizing and empowering your psychology because to get the body doing what you want it to do, you have to get your head right or rather have the tools accessible to make those things work together in tandem. And so today on the show, we have a practitioner that works with the body to heal the mind. Today's guest is Stacey Ruel Dupont, who is a psychologist that uses exercise and diet to treat mental health problems. And this intro is already talking my language, as you well know. Stacey's psychology practice includes a personal training studio, nutrition coaching, PTs, and health coaches to help create a clinic that feels like a health club focused on health from the inside out. She has spent her life balancing focus points, going to school, having children, running a business, being a family, and when she's not juggling all of those busy, important hats, she loves hanging out, going on adventures, the outdoors, and loves a craft beer. Who doesn't love a good beer? We're going to get on superbly. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show, Stacey. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. You are more than welcome. These are some of my favorite topics, too. (laughs) <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm so pumped to get into this. Like talking psychology from a physicality standpoint is really exciting for me as well. So I'm really curious, how did you arrive at that conclusion that to successfully treat mental health challenges or, you know, um, apply psychotherapy in a really sort of practical way? When did you realize that included nutrition and movement? What was the sort of events that led to that? Well, it actually went the other way. So originally I was going to be a psychiatrist. Um, coming out of high school and into my first year of college. And um, I actually had some physical health problems that were eventually, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. Um, And it took quite a long time for me to get an accurate diagnosis. And so the the my my disillusionment with western medicine started there i was about 16 years old and it really was very frustrating in and out of um offices and in order to be a psychiatrist i would have had to go to med- medical school and at that point i thought I don't want to be reactive because the way that I was treated was often in symptom management and I thought I wanted to to look at it from a different point of view. So I ended up actually going to school and becoming um, 
an exercise scientist getting a degree in kinesiology and thinking that that was a proactive way to help people working in large fitness centers, um, corporate wellness and different programming like that, eventually owning a fitness center. And um, my clients would cry. And so it didn't really matter where I was, what entity I was working in, I would have people crying on the fitness center floor. And I didn't know why they just, they would put on their intake form, something about, I don't want to be as depressed, or they'd start telling me about marital problems or something. And the other folks that would train with me, they would, the colleagues would laugh and they'd say, oh, your client's crying again on the treadmill. And I'd say, oh, I don't know what's going on, but we're going to lose some weight now because every time we actually made it through whatever emotional piece was there, they would start really moving and progressing towards their goals. And so, um, so those plateaus, it would be actually got pretty exciting to think, okay, well, as we hit the emotional piece, that plateau physically was going, was moving. And I realized I needed more skills. I realized that whatever was in me was drawing that out, whatever questioning or however I was holding that space. And I didn't really know what any of that meant at the time. So I um, went back to school and then I took quite a long time um, to go through and get to the point of being a psychologist. Um, and through that time I had was still working and always working in the fitness and wellness industry and then ended up in community mental health and really liked it. Never thought I would stay there. I just really needed to jump through the hoops of getting licensed and getting what I needed to do to be able to practice in the fitness center where I was already working. And, um, And then I liked community mental health. So I stayed in community mental health for nine and a half years and let the fitness piece of it settle a bit. Um, I kept my hand in that world, but really shifted from working the big box corporate fitness and wellness to working more from the mental health side of things, um, eventually doing my dissertation work around a clinical population and, and looking at exercise as a treatment. Um, people would come in my office and I had a lot of freedom to be able to offer the variety of skills that I had um, and coach them on fitness and wellness and nutrition alongside the mental health piece, always with mental health as the main treatment. Well, I, it was a, a, one of my clients was in my office and he was new to Durango and we, where I live, we live at uh, 6,500 feet above sea level. And so, um, for a lot of folks, that's really hard when you come to our town, it's hard to breathe. So he was new to the town, um, and literally had to ride uphill on his bike both ways to get to work. And so he was riding his bike and he would have these panic attacks and he'd come in and talk about these panic attacks. And I, I, he, I'm listening to him talk and I'm like, that's not panic. You just can't breathe. Like literally you're having trouble. Yeah. And so, um, I started realizing what he, you know, from him, um, in his example, he's pushing that anaerobic threshold window in the exercise science world. And I started getting more and more interested about the physiology of things like panic of, um, the polyvagal theory, looking at how the vagal nerve links into mental health. And then what's really happening when people are, doing exercise and the HPA axis of the body, the hypothalamus pituitary and adrenal axis, stress axis of the body and the endocrine system gets hit when you exercise too. But when you're chronically stressed and those chemicals don't metabolize out, 
you can't, um, you don't feel that ability to relax like you do after a hard workout, even though that same system gets hit in a workout, but you metabolize through those chemicals. And so you are left with your endorphins feeling good and relaxed and joyful after a good workout. So I started programming that into my psychology practice and the treatment I was doing with folks and started adding that in. And then over the course of a number of years, had a variety of, of programs leading to my dissertation research where what became really apparent was it was exposure. Um, people who, um, interestingly enough, had more diagnoses, more complex diagnoses, more addiction issues, and um, more trauma issues actually worked out more. And anecdotally, they told me things like, well, there's nothing to do when you're in jail you work out. Yeah. Or um, when I lost my driver's license, I had to walk everywhere. I had to ride my bike for a year or whatever they, you know, their treatment was. Um, other folks were saying, well, I, I don't have a car. They were living in poverty or um, you know, lack of transportation or lack of resources. So they really had to be resourceful and they had to move more literally to make their world work. Yep. And as a result, those were the folks who kept reporting on the surveys that exercise was helpful for them and it had decreased their mental health symptoms. And so from that research, I started building more programming around what could I do to expose people to movement and then what would happen. Wow, yeah. And um, eventually wa watching how the window of tolerance and trauma treatment, we talk about this window of tolerance coming out of Dan Siegel's work, um, and people tipping out of this window, well, the goal is to expand it so that they have more capacity for difficult emotional sensations, difficult physical sensations while they go through the trauma processing. And in exercise, we do the same thing with a, a window where we're looking at our aerobic and anaerobic thresholds and where we're at and how much work we're doing in our training zones. And so when I started mapping those two things together, along with a couple of exercise um, modalities like Tabata, and I hook that up with a therapy modality called Hakomi, um, and I'd kind of look at how these things would play together and what would happen. And in some of the pilot studies that we did, um, I had people in two, three, four sessions really quickly change a mindset yeah. um, because they felt it in their body. And in somatic psychology, we honor the body uh, first or greatly. And as a result, when you have an experience, you change your neurology, you change the way you understand the world. And we can go after some of those subconscious beliefs so quickly that this was really effective for people that fit within this genre. And then um, I just kept trying it out and just kept looking at what, what came next and how it fit together and who got helped and how that worked and went from there. That's amazing. I think I'm firstly so impressed at the young age that you were disillusioned by Western medicine. That's really impressive. A lot of, a lot of people need to spend considerable time in the system before they find that out. So I spent considerable time doing tests in a short period of time. Yeah, I totally understand. And, and as you would, I hear from people and potential clients and new clients that you know find me as a result of that disillusionment process. Yes. I think that's powerful. But a lot of what you're speaking about is, is part of my own disillusionment 
enlightenment process of Western medicine. And that was really understanding things like the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, yes. and understanding that Western medicine, for the most part, doesn't factor in the mindset. And, and you're what it sounds like, and, and you know, the belief systems that inform the way that that person's body functions, they think about the world, their frame of reference. And it sounds a little bit like what it's kind of like you're coming from the opposite it's like when we talk psychology in a conventional scientific way it's like we talk about the mind as separate from the body whereas you're right. like no they're all together and i love this cuz yeah. it's all connected we're all you know all the systems in the body are equally connected and i think it, this conversation's already reminding me of um that book uh lost connections by joanne harry have you read that I have not. No. Oh, you've, yeah, you've got to check it out. I'll it's a brilliant it. book about, um, yeah, physical movement, returning to nature, and, and this type of thing about sort of depression and these things in the modern sort of Western mm-hmm. privileged world, if you know what I mean. But, um, right. but yeah, this is awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm loving what you're doing, and I love how you come of it at this, this sort of problem. But I'm curious as well. How do you figure out with the people that come to your clinic and see you? Where do you begin with that physical movement? Where do you begin to be like, okay, you know, is there a pattern with depression re- results in needing to do burpees or running or, or, you know, how do you match those two things together? So that was some trial and error and it still is. Um, the, the big, so I, I come at it from a psychology point first. And, and just like you said, to me, there is no separation in mind and body. As I'm doing the session, I'm going to be watching the movement, I'm looking for where the breath goes. And, and part of my journey was I, uh, I was trained originally in cognitive and behavioral um, therapies in yep. more mainstream university. And then I went to a continuing education class for a Hakomi workshop, for, which is a somatic psychology. And they said, you're so good at reading the body, you need you need to look more at this. And I didn't, I was like, oh, I'm just getting some CEUs. I don't, whatever, sure. And, but they were right because of all my years spent in exercise science and personal training and group exercise instruction and working with what was happening physically. I was, I could see where people weren't breathing and where they were holding tension differently than my, my other associates were that I was working with. And so, um, I start from the psychology side, um, because most people come to me because I'm a clinical psychologist. So they, they are coming and looking for psychology work. And they know, a lot of them know that I also do this movement-based stuff. But what was interesting is when people would come in, they come in and they say, I want, I want you because you do this holistic practice and you have this nutrition background and you have the, the personal training and the exercise science background. And I really like that. But then they come in the office and they don't really want to move. They want to, I have really comfortable chairs. They lay back in the chairs and they want to like hang out in the chair and do mindfulness-based practices and which is great. That's wonderful. But, um, what I started to realize was they need to look at the psychology and then we can add the movement as, as we go. And so I meet them in the psychology first. We kind of talk about things and then we get a feel for where they are and what they need. And from there, then I look at either assigning them movement to do outside of session or we do movement in session. Um, And so it just depends on what they need. A lot of times in the therapy room, the movement is really small. It's breathing exercises. It might be moving a foot or a leg or a hand or an arm. Um, It might be looking in a direction. It might be closing the eyes, opening the eyes, stuff like that where they're really experiencing and taking what they're thinking and applying that in an embodied way. And then they're able to 
think about it differently. Um, Well, and then what I have found and what we have started looking more at is what's happening in the nervous system around these different mental health treatments or disorders. And so when I was doing my dissertation research, I really thought it was going to be psychological trauma that would be the thing that kept people from being able to be in their body. Because when when we're treating trauma, a lot of times people are very disembodied as a result of the traumas that they've been through. And they can't feel the body. The body becomes the enemy. It's dirty. It needs to be contained or whatever. Well, um, what I found was it wasn't trauma that kept them from being in the body. It was panic and anxiety. And so, and panic more specifically. And so it was that feeling of nervous system arousal that they couldn't really drop in. They would get overwhelmed again. Um, the breathing would come up and then that would trigger into, I'm going to have a panic attack and the thought process would go. So I started realizing that if I could program, if I could program the movement according to the nervous system piece, then I could push these windows up and I could push them up against that anaerobic threshold and I could then maneuver them and I could then take that and maneuver them back down really quickly and help them stay in that window just by using different movements and different muscle groups. So if I used, say, the pectoralis major, a big muscle group of the upper body that we know if you do upper body movement, um, you're going to get a presser response. So you're going to have an elevated heart rate that's a little artificial, but I could do it fairly quickly and then I can have them stop that fairly quickly and their heart rate's going to drop back down, which due to respiratory sinus arrhythmia is going to change their breath rate, which is going to hit into the heart rate variability. And then that will change their nervous system state. So I could quickly do these movements and programming. And so I started playing around with things like Tabata, yep. which is really fun doing sometimes with people who have no idea what you're doing to them. Um, <laughs> and sometimes the movement in the therapy room is not hard like you might do on, on a fitness center Tabata workout. Um, but I'm looking and I'm mapping some of what we call core wounding or early psychological development yeah. around locomotor development. And so I could say, well, here's the wounding. You don't think you can get your needs met. That that sets up around age six eight months to 18 months or so, two years locomotor movement development would be this and this and this at that time. And as a result, if I gave you this kind of a movement, so for one, one woman, um, she, uh, felt like no one was there to help her. And so it had to do with an early childhood experience around being able to stand and get support. And she kind of knew the story of her early childhood. And, um, so we put her on a BOSU ball where the ball was on the bottom part, so the flat hop, top on on the top, and had her stand on that doing some squats, and she could hang on. So it wasn't a it was it was a difficult balancing movement, but she had quite a bit of supports if she needed them, and um, and so I had the timer going behind me, and as she was going through the rounds on her, you know, twenty seconds on. 10 seconds off rounds. I lost track of how many rounds we were on. And I turned to look and she turned and yelled at me, you need to help me. And it was things like that, that really became ways to give voice to these early experiences somebody might have. And we did it through using the movement that matched the locomotor development around the core wounding time for the psychology and person development. 
So that was one thing that we started testing and playing around with. The other thing we started testing and playing around with was, um, well, if it was nervous system stuff, that was really part of what I was going after with these different movement patterns, especially when we were doing things like Tabata and high intensity training, pushing up those windows, then I could say, well, depression is lethargic in the nervous system. It's heavy. It's slow. The person can't quite get going. Anxiety is really high. And so trauma and trauma kind of bounces all over. So I could take the movement and then I could match the nervous system arousal. So for depression, I could start with really slow, say, very weighted squats. Um, And I could have the person doing even small amounts of movement, but then it's matching that nervous system feeling. And then we could get faster and less weight and we could go into intervals or we could go into a variety of training modalities, even into, you know, plyometrics and things like that, where we're adding speed and explosiveness and velocity. And then the person is now their nervous system is revved up more and they're not feeling as depressed. They also felt stronger in the body. And again, we're playing around with, you know, breath and heart rates and nervous system and heart rate variability through all of that as well. Totally. Question. So I've got a couple of questions that have come out of your mm-hmm. description of what you do and it's, I find it so fascinating. Does this sort of move into the space of the, of the idea that, that the body sort of stores trauma in certain places and then I guess what comes to mind when I say that is like thinking of chakras and you know, mm-hmm. sort of stagnant energy you know, if we're to move into that co- sort of conversation. Is that the concept that you're sort of trying to unlock this stored energy from those movements that were developed or should have been developed correctly at a particular age that these tra- where, where these tra- traumas happened, which stored the trauma in that particular part of the body? Sort of. I hadn't thought of it like that before, but I like your, I like your thinking. So I shall do that from now on. I'll think about it that way. The, sort of, <laughs> there you go. You can have that one for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. The, the, um, so yes, I come, from, I come from some lineage that trauma is stored in the body. And when I look at the the way that a person is set up, so we have our windows that I use a lot, but I also, if I, I think about the human um, experience somewhat like a pyramid, where the bottom of it is the physicality, it's the tangible, it's the concrete, it's the past. When you look at somebody's body and their posture and their their musculature and where their connective tissue is tight and stuck and sticky, you you can see what has happened to them. You can see what has manifested already. Um, I would love your vision. That sounds so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then the next one layer up is, um, is the emotional body. And so um, on my website, I have this as a more of a rectangular kind of chart where they all come together. But right now I'm describing it more like a pyramid where the, the next layer up is an emotional body because emotions are the next thing. So in comes information into the body, into the physical system, and we have a physical sensation of that. And so that physical sensation then shoots up to the brainstem. We decide safe or not safe. If it's safe, we go on and we start making meaning of it and we categorize it and we label it, we judge it, and then we call it something, an emotion. We have a feeling about something and we label it based on past experience. And then the next layer up, is the mental 
body, which then makes meaning of that feeling of what's going on in the context of what's around. We're using more intellect there uh, based on past experience, maybe on what we think should be happening, etc. And we have thoughts about it. And then we have a spiritual piece to us that's connected to the larger whole. And so we're constantly taking and giving information in and out of the whole system, which is much beyond our physical body. So what what happens is the the problem becomes that in that physical sensation, it can be misread. So anxiety and excitement have a very, very, very similar somatic presentation. You know, butterflies in the stomach, I might feel a little nauseous, I might be a little sweaty, and my heart rate might be going up, I might be able to see a little clearer, a little stronger, a little faster, whatever. But if I was raised to be excited when I felt that and to have exciting experiences when I felt that, I will think something fun is about to happen. I might still have some fear in there, but I'm going to probably lean and go more towards my past experience and I'm going to categorize that as something good or fun versus if I was raised in a fearful family or had fearful things happen to me and I get this feeling when fearful things had happened, now I'm conditioned and I go, something bad's about to happen hello, anxiety, and I'm going to shut down. I'm going to contain rather than expand and be open. And so um, from that that place, yes, trauma gets stored in the body in a variety of ways and in a variety of um, locations. And so when I used to teach yoga classes, um, inevitably during hip opener time, somebody would start tearing up. Um, We know the hips hold a lot, a lot, a lot of emotion. And so moving them and stretching them um, and opening them up often releases a lot. We know the shoulders hold a lot. Um, And and so I don't necessarily ascribe to any one um, method or modality that is absolute. But in my office, there have been... um, a number of anecdotal experiences that overlay some of the most common metaphors we have for arms, legs, feet, etc. Um, and I've played around using EMDR with some of that and some of the positive statements in, in place of the negative pieces with some of the chronic pain protocols and, and even straight up EMDR protocols. And they, um, it, it works and people release things differently. It's really interesting. And um, I'm not 100% sure how it all plays out, but there's something about it that truly is real in those moments. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. 
To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. It reminds me of um, things like, you know, the runner's high or going into a sauna, how, you know, we put our body under these uh, stressful situations and afterwards Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you need to run it off or go do a workout to sort out some trauma or not necessarily trauma, but just some challenging concepts in your mind. And afterwards you're kind of like, oh, it's going to be okay. We'll figure it out kind of thing. And so it releases that energy out of your body that's sort of conflicted and confused and, and sort of trapped, let's say. Right, right. And it metabolizes out those stress hormones that we talked about earlier that are coursing through the system when we don't have a way to let it go. So when we look at animals, they shake. Or if you've had a near miss, say, driving, you, you we tend to shake even if nothing bad happened. And that's the adrenaline, the cortisol, you know, the norepinephrine, all those stress hormones that are cascading through the system, which is working really great and and sometimes so quickly that we don't even notice it. But if we can't get those out, they bounce around the system and they cause inflammation. And now we have problems of chronic pain. um, We have joint problems. We have heart problems. We have digestive problems. We have um, concentration and brain fog problems because now we have all this inflammation in the system and the body gets confused and does not know what to do. It doesn't know where to go. It doesn't know how to get rid of this stuff. And it starts go, it almost becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy because now the, the brain's going, something's wrong. There's inflammation. I've got a problem. I need to fight that. Goes out, starts fighting it, but it's fighting its own tissue because there's not any wound. And then it ends up, we end up with things like um, our, you know, our um, chronic inflammation type disorders and our autoimmune disorders and things like that, where the body's attacking itself. And so it's all there together. Absolutely. When you say inflammation, the first thing that comes up for me as a sort of scientist and nutritional therapist is sort of the more physical diseases as a result of diet and lifestyle. And so Mm -hmm. I remember... um, the, in the intro, like you work with health coaches as well. So I'm curious what, what kind of situation the clients that you see their, their guts are in, their, their stomachs and gastrointestinal tract mm-hmm. are in and, and what kind of nutrition needs to go in to help support this practice of movement and sort of unlocking and releasing trauma. Well, it really depends on the person and what they're coming in with. And I have started, and and this is a pretty new area for me, but looking at more um, of the inflammation and what the inflammation is doing in the system and then how that's impacting the psychology. So how is depression linked to inflammation? How is anxiety linked to inflammation? Because we can so quickly go after inflammation with things like diet and movement. And, And that is a little easier than changing thoughts. So especially if somebody's entrenched in depression and we've had a chronic long-term depressive state, the experiences needed to change the neurology are that can be really hard to overcome for people. And so it not that it can't be done, it absolutely can, but we if we can change their diet and we can get that inflammation to settle down, they have a new experience and suddenly those experiences don't take quite as long to change. So 
Um, so if somebody comes in again, I typically on my side of the house, I'm looking for psychology first and then programming into exercise and nutrition for our health coaches, our nutrition coaches, and our personal trainers, people are coming into those programs for health and wellness first. And then they're looking at where the psychology can be supported. So in the clinic, we have folks who do both uh, traditional mental health, traditional fitness and wellness programming. And then we have a a few of us who are crossing over all the time. And so if somebody were to come in, say, for the health coach, and we know their microbiome is off. And they're t- as they talk to the health coach, the health coach is looking at, oh, they're feeling unmotivated. So I've got that. I've got that piece. I'll work on that. Um, I can tell that they're not sleeping well. I'll work on that. Um, I'm going to send them to Stacy to go work on depression because as a, le- a problem with their sleep and they've got, you know, they're not sleeping well. They're not rested. Their depression is rising. So she'll work on the depression piece. And I'm going to send them the trainer so that we can actually get some physical movement going, help with the inflammation rates, get some strength and efficacy so they feel strong in themselves and their body. And then so they can work with all of us like that. Um, from my, my world, I recently actually just did a similar um, case where I had a teenage um, female come in, very depressed, very angry, frustrated, had uh, some history of some disordered eating patterns, as well as some cutting behaviors. And um, so we got um, her connected with the personal trainers and the nutritionists so that she can feel again strong in her body, so that she can learn to feel her worth and her esteem Um, getting her nutrition back on track and really helping teach that what we put in our body and how we put in our body really matters and how we feel about ourselves and undercut some of that disordered eating pattern. And then um, working with the behavioral health providers around the depression and the anger and the frustrations and and the lack of self-esteem. So combining all of those together is one of our examples of a, a recent crossover. Yeah, it's a it's a truly holistic approach, I think, that you do. And I, I really, really love it because the human experience is always doing, you know, all of those things at the same time. We're always using our psychology. Yeah. Our body's pretty much always moving, you know, in some way and our metabolism is running. So, like, I think in every health context, all three of those things should be supported. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like even... Um the so one of my specialty areas are typically in, in trauma, complex trauma, addiction, um, and personality disordered behaviors. It, when I'm looking at the, those complex trauma cases, if we've got addiction in there, we know their gut is off, and we know that the gut and the microbiome is somewhat feeding cravings for the addictive behavior, yep. and so. Um, you know, even when it's a process addiction, so say something like gambling or shopping, the whole system gets off. And so the nutrition coaches program to help bring that microbiome back online. So if somebody's had an alcohol use disorder um, and they really have negated their nutrition for a long period of time, the nutritionist is working with them to bring their microbiome back online to help fight the cravings for alcohol using healthy food choices and um, balancing of vitamins and minerals so that the cravings are less, which makes the mental health treatment easier, which makes the sobriety recovery process faster, and they, they can commit 
So important because uh, I guess as you're very aware, but for the listeners, you know, a lot of these foods that people are addicted with, to sugars, carbs, vegetable oils are so detrimental to the physical state of the biology and it deteriorates right. biology so catastrophically. In particular, our neurons uh, and our gut-brain uh, connection, the vagal nerve, the, hyper, yes. uh, the hippocampus where the, those messages about hunger and, and whatnot are received. And often, it's a, and you'd, you'd see this all the time, is that when people leave their psych appointment, or their counsellor, they're feeling vulnerable, they're feeling unsafe. And so the first stop is to treat themselves at a fast food restaurant or via the supermarket to go and get chocolate because they want to comfort that exposed, traumatised child. And so it's like, you know, it's like walking to McDonald's. It doesn't negate the fact you just had McDonald's because you walked there. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So I think it's so important to um, factor in the nutrition because otherwise you're just, you're just sort of going to be, you know, a hamster on the wheel. (laughs) Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. I laugh. One of my first jobs was McDonald's and it was always great. I want a double (laughs) quarter pounder with cheese, but I'm going to have that diet Coke. Okay. (laughs) I'm not sure the diet Coke offset the double quarter pounder with cheese, but have at it. <laughs> yeah, totally. it's um, it it is, and it's really important. And a lot of people, um, as you just said, they don't know. They don't know the connection between what they ate last night and the headache they have today, the brain fog they have today, the lack of sleep. I, I meet so many people who have no idea that alcohol wakes them up in the middle of the night. They think they just can't sleep. When yeah. we get dive down in, it's like, well, that nightcap you had. At 2 a.m., 3 a.m., when your liver really kicks in, just shot it right back out in your system, and now you're up solving the world's problems all over again. (laughs) And so, you know, they they don't know. They don't know that the inflammation in the gut is part of what's driving the depression or driving the, you know, the the anxiety, um, the ADHD, and and things like that that people really struggle with. Um, More and more research is coming out around the 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 nutrition and psychiatry um what's happening in the gut and and looking at disorders like bipolar and schizophrenia that really yep. once somebody got diagnosed with those and you know we know there there's something with the brain and the way the brain is processing information but now we also know that people who have those have different gut bacteria than people who don't yeah and absolutely. that when they're having different episodes of those disorders that part of those different episodes is linked into what's going on in their gut health. And so as more and more research comes out around that, I think we're going to see lots, lots more in the world of, um, you know, nutritional psychiatry, um, psychobiotics, um, you know, medications that are really targeting gut health for mental health. Um, because many of our, our most needed neurotransmitters for mental health are made in the gut. Absolutely. And they come from uh, being established from a healthy diet, particularly, you know, B vitamin complex uh, that build neurotransmitters and a range of those things, which are absolutely, you know, missing from most of the sort of food that the general public need. And so it's one thing to work on your psychological trauma, but it's another thing to to sort of cease putting in foods that destroy the biology that stores that trauma. So yeah, it's, it's, I love that you put it all together. It makes me super happy that there's people in in the world like you doing this work well thank you so much it's been <laughs> a great journey for us and um you know and, and my sister she she said to me one day she said you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing And at the time i'd felt really confused as to what i was doing and i was getting a lot of questions of how are you going to do this what are you going to 
do with it? How are you going to make it work? And I didn't know. Um, and it's been a really fun journey. There's been, been a sense of like, well, let's just try this and we'll see what happens and we'll open that up. And, um, and that's the way it is right now with our, with our clinic is let's just see what, what works. We'll try it out and we'll see how it goes. And, um, and we have the practitioners in place who, who agree with this and we know, and, and much of the research in healthcare is pointing to these integrative places. It's looking back at, at things like Ayurveda and Chinese medicine going, those are system approaches to health and wellness. And they, they take in this holistic approach to what keeps us well, where when we look at Western medicine, it's more deducing things down into symptoms and then treating these symptoms in a cause and effect, more linear system, much needed in, in some cases. Um, but it's not necessarily a system of keeping us well. It's a system of keeping us not sick. And so totally the, the research, um, coming out around integrated care environments and, um, how we're blending or need to blend disciplines up as it looks back to the past and to the, the Eastern philosophies and then looking towards the future um, is really pointing to these integrative type systems where we really are moving into understanding that these different practices have their validity in their own areas, but that staying in our lane doesn't help the patient. And that if we can really help each other we are going to be a much more robust team and, and that person's going to get better faster. They're going to cost us less as a society from healthcare standpoint, and they're going to pass on genetic codes that are more healthy to the offspring, um, helping make humanity a stronger, a stronger piece um, in the world. And, and hopefully a little more settled, not quite as inflamed, not quite as fiery hopefully more calm, cool and collected. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's definitely what we want, right? And especially the passing on of genetic material is something as a biologist myself that kind of I find conflicting is that Western medicine sort of facilitates sick people with terrible DNA codes that hold very rich disease, rich DNA. uh, (laughs) It allows that to propagate through our world and that just overall with the you know with the widespread use of western medicine really mm-hmm. allows uh, a huge sort of quantum leap backwards in evolution <laughs> <laughs> i've never thought of it that way either but yes <laughs> there's that element of yeah i don't want to pass on what's sick and we know um we know many physical disorders get passed on genetically right um and the, the study of epigenetics is so fascinating. And when we look at epigenetics of things like trauma, of addiction, of obesity, um, we're passing that stuff on. And if I do my work in my lifetime, um, hopefully before I have children, I'm not going to be passing on that trauma that maybe was passed on to me from my grandparents and you know my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents. And any of us who are alive in the world today have some pretty awful things that went on four, five, six generations ago in our lineage. And and people had to survive many, many things. Um, and many cultures are surviving really horrific things today. And so being able to do our work in our lifetime allows us to, one, stop that transmission of those things like trauma onto the offspring 
which is a disruption to the nervous system, which then is a disruption to disease in the body. And it creates physical illness down the road. Um, and it creates all sorts of, of physical problems for people when we look at um, studies like the ACEs study on adverse childhood experiences and then what that means for people down the road um, in adulthood and the amount of physical disorders that they run into and the amount of health care that they need. And knowing that people with mental health issues on average die younger than people who don't. They utilize about 25% more of our health care than people who do not have mental health um illness and they that that's costly to our our systems that if we could help heal those things from a more integrative and holistic approach that those people would be much more healthy they would be um better able to engage in our community from a well point of view um they would you know that the the physical health care costs would go down and yeah. we wouldn't be passing that stuff on for the next generation to do the same thing um, and if I don't, if I can't heal it while I'm before childbirth, then hopefully I could heal it after. And then I'm teaching my children in the environment, um, I to love be that. different than maybe I was, which will also change genetic code because we know the environment is constantly turning off and on genetic code. So if we can heal ourselves, we really, we really do humanity a service as we move towards the future. I totally agree. And that ACE study that you mentioned was a very, very powerful influence mm -hmm. on me and my research journey. It's such a, such a good study. And maybe next yeah. time on the show, we can talk a little bit about that uh, if we do another episode. But I'd love to talk to you about uh, generational and ancestral trauma. I think that conversation would be amazing. But where can everybody find you online if they, they're loving this conversation and they want more of you? Where can they find you? And you've just opened a new clinic, right? We just opened a brand new clinic and expanded the practice. Um, it's called Studio B. We call it a studio because studios are where you create things. Um, so we didn't call it a health center. We didn't call it a health clinic. We called it a studio because this is the place you come in and you create yourself. Mm -hmm. You decide what we want to work on, where we want to go, and then we make it fun. Um, not many people want to come in and say, I'm really depressed. Um, it's going to be a good time. But we work really hard to say, hey, we can come after that depression from lots of different ways and you're going to have a good time doing it. So we get you moving and, and get you working out. We get you in some good food and healthy eating habits and um, really work on changing lifestyle um, behaviors in a fun and positive way, even though we might also be working on some pretty heavy um, mental health presentations or history and, and experiences that people have gone through. So we can support them in a variety of ways. Um, you know, it's studios are where ideas are made concrete. They're where we put stuff together. It's where we try stuff out and we have that attitude of creation and fun and exploring. And so um, we call it Studio B. So you can find um, Studio B information at studiob.life. Um, and it's the word studio, the letter B.life. Um, you can find me at stacyruel.com. And there is the information on me, my private uh, psychology practice, um, my education history, etc. It's a great way to reach out to me directly if you want. It's also where I post any online programs I have coming up or going on at the time. Um, and some of those just ebb and flow depending on the time of year. And then um, you can also find me at stacyrd.com, which is where I blog. And that blog is all about psychology and physiology, the mind and the movement. And um, it's looking at all sorts of different ways to explore 
how our psychology and our movement patterns interact and what those do. And so there's a, a lot, a wide variety there of, um, both from the exercise science world and, and the psychology world, kind of whatever I get interested in writing about or our guest bloggers want to post about. So um, that's another great place to meet meet up with me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. So f- for all of the listeners, uh, I will have Stacey's handles down in the show notes. So uh, you can go down there and check out her stuff. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend if you think they'll benefit. Um, otherwise, take a screenshot of this episode and upload it to your Instagram story, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever you like to hang out. Everywhere's got stories these days. Um, yeah. And tag tag us both so that we can uh, yes, see who, who's tuning in. Um, and to conclude this wonderful conversation, Stacey, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about hmm. um it's hard just one <laughs> i know just one there's so much i feel like we just talked about so much um, we did. <laughs> if, if there's one thing i would i would say and this might cheat a little bit but that everything we just talked about is all it's all connected everything is all connected and you you I, it doesn't matter which door you enter whether it be diet or movement or psychology just enter the door and then take responsibility for yourself and your health because only you can do that. And so the, the more that you can enter the door and take responsibility, the better your life gets, the higher the quality of life, because health is all we have as we move through this journey. And it, it, it allows you to experience so much more when you can do it from a place of physical and mental health. That is a beautiful way to wrap up. Thank you so much for being here, Stacey. I loved this conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Maddie. It's been great. It's been great to talk with you and I appreciate being on your show. You are more than welcome. I hope it helps some folks. I definitely will, but we'll catch you really soon, okay? All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.